as we get set, we're headed here in the auditorium to Revelation 14. Revelation chapter 14 is our Bible study this morning. While you're getting set for that, let's just do a little bit of mind thinking. Here we go. With uh, what we would say, you know, polls, what Americans say, just for fun. Name an Olympic sport in which a cow would look funny participating in. High jump? <laughs> what? The hurdle? Skiing? Anything else? Swimming? Here's what they said. Figure skating. I can't imagine that. Gymnastics, long jump, skiing, swimming, and running. Here's one for you. Name something people brag about. Children? Their spouse? Their car? Everything? <laughs> What's that? Sports team? Well, I don't. Um, sports ability, car, body, their looks, their education, their knowledge, their job, their income, and number one was the kids. Here's one for you. Name a reason people might want to hide from someone when they go to work. What'd you say? Guilt over what? It's going to be up there. Sleeping at work? Okay. Oh, you're trying to... You wouldn't do this. Okay, okay. Not that you would ever do this, right? Okay. Any other reason people hide at work? Not doing their money. They what? They owe money? Yeah, here's what they said. They said, you did something wrong. You're, the, the person you're working with was an ex. You owe them money. You're late. Number one, you don't like them. Name something you might lose as you get older. Did you notice how none of us have a good answer? Because none of us are experiencing this. What's that? <laughs> we just don't want to admit it. Is that what it is? Something you lose as you get older. I'm ignoring the hair one. Okay. Just <laughs> Hearing? Yeah. Social graces. <laughs> we don't want to admit it, but it's really true. Uh, patience, hearing, sight, teeth, hair. Hair was not number one. What's number one? What's no- I forget. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Name some things John saw in the, more than one time in the book of Revelation. Angels. What else? The what? The elders. Okay, that represent the church. Anything else he saw more than once? The beast. Okay. Okay, the scroll came up a couple times. The throne, the throne sitter. Okay, the trumpets, there's multiple trumpets. If we just summarize it this way, we would say, okay, there's a couple times he sees the 144,000. That's in Revelation 7 and 14, which we're going to start with. Persecution of God's people, it comes up several times. Uh, Antichrist and the false prophet, they get a lot of press, especially in chapter 13 and going into uh, 12 and 13. Satan and the demons, natural disasters, the judgments you mentioned, the trumpets, you have the seals as well, the angels, and the throne sitter. So if we're going to do this, just to give an idea of where we're at so far, some of you catching up, let's walk through Revelation starting with chapter 1. Chapter 1 in the book of Revelation, John sees something. Do you remember what he sees? He's on the Isle of Patmos. He's going to all of a sudden have a vision of... The picture helps, by the way. Yeah, who's in the midst of the seven lampstands? Who's walking in the midst of them? 
Jesus Christ. Okay, he says, a vision of the Lord moving among the seven candlesticks, which represent, as he says, the seven churches. And then God, or Jesus, tells him, you need to record what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you about things that are, things that will be. You need to record all of this. And so then in chapter 2, he starts recording to the things which are. Chapter 2 and 3 is basically the summary of the postcards, the letters that God has for each of those seven churches, which was the beginning of the circulation of the book of Revelation. We haven't taken time to explore those in this class. We've done that in other series. But he writes a little note, several verses, to each one of those churches. Then starting chapter 4 through the next section, uh, basically chapter 11, he gives a summary of all the future events. And basically he's going to be talking about a time period that is called the tribulation. And he gives a summary in total of that time period. He starts in chapter 4 with seeing that there's elders who are in heaven. There's 24 of them. And what are they doing? They picture the church. What are they doing? Okay, they're bowing down and they're casting their crowns unto the, uh, unto the Lamb of God, unto Jesus Christ and the Father. Then he continues that account of seeing them do that around the throne. They're singing, there's worshiping, and they're praising. And then the throne sitter, God the Father, has a scroll in his hand. Anybody remember anything about the scroll? No one can open it. Good. Anything else? It's sealed with seven seals. And so they're crying out, who can open up this scroll? We suggest that the strong possibility of this scroll is the concept of bringing about what is predicted to happen in the end times. The Son of God setting up his kingdom on earth. God taking over the planet, setting up his rule. And so who can open this and get us to that point? And the initial reaction in heaven is, who can open it initially? No one can. And so John is sorrowful, but then who comes from behind the stage? Let's say it that way. Okay, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb, the, the one, the Lamb, the Lion of Judah comes out. He takes it, and everybody does what? Everybody in heaven, what's the reaction? Oh, just praising. And the song that they sang? Worthy. Yeah, and so there's this just this outbreaking there in the, in the heaven with him taking this because it's indicative that he's going to be able to open this up, and it includes the judgments, and bring about the final kingdom. And so there's enthusiasm and excitement, not for destruction, but for where it's going to eventually end up at. And so this is all in conjunction with what's already been predicted. Daniel calls this whole period the 70th week of Daniel or the tribulation. And that begins the time for the chronological chart that he gives. And so they start opening up these seals. And the next few chapters, it's just totally consistent with previous prophecy. And he's talking about this 70th week and gives a summary of it. And so uh, just like what Jesus said, and if we were going to do a timeline, let's do it backwards, okay? The ultimate goal is to get to the kingdom that Jesus is setting up. That final seven weeks, how does it, or seven years, called the seven weeks, what is the beginning point? The signing of the covenant, okay? And that begins this period of, of seven years. And in the midst of that, all of a sudden Antichrist will break the treaty he makes between he and Israel, which is indicative of the basic nature of this time period. The first three and a half years, the Jews are hearing of wars and rumors of wars. But for them, they're pretty settled. They're okay. 
And that's what Jesus had expressed in the book of Matthew. Then in the second half, Antichrist breaks the treaty and goes after them so as to destroy them and wipe them out because then he can prove God to be a false, uh, a false uh, ruler. And so Jesus, in, in comparison, said, you'll hear of these things, but then, then later in Matthew 24, he says, you're going to be killed. So he's warning them. And so that's a basic breakdown of the seven-year period, which during this time period, there are three sets of judgments. What's the first set of seven judgments? The seals. Thank you. And then that's, that's described in chapter 6 through 8. Then he starts describing in the second part of chapter 8 and into chapter 9 the second set of judgments, the, the trumpet judgments, okay? And that goes all the way through the second half. The last ends up with the Lord returning. During the trumpet judgments, there is also, which we haven't started yet, the bold judgments, which are going to be talked about in chapters 15 and 16. We'll get to them, Lord willing, next week. And uh, so then he's giving that. Let me put it just make sure that we're all on the same page. Before the signing of the treaty, we go to heaven. We've pointed that out. We get rewards in heaven. We have our crowns. And then sometime before that treaty, I don't know how long it is, we're taken away in the rapture, then the treaty is signed. And then you have all the seal judgments that take place, the trumpet judgments that take place. What he does after he's mentioned all the way up to the seventh judgment, just really quickly, he says that Jesus will come back. Then in chapters 10 and 11, he backs up. And he gives a little bit of information about that that last three and a half years. He talks about the temple will be overrun. The city will be overrun by the Gentiles. He talks about two prophets that are going to be preaching during that time. Then he talks about the idea of the trumpet is going to be sounded. There will be the end. And then chapter 12 and 13, he again adds some background information. Why? How did it get so bad? Chapters 12 and 13, if you remember, who does he focus on? He focuses on three characters. Do you remember who they are? who are going to make it as bad as it gets. Who's, who's the ultimate character? Okay. No, no. In evil. Satan. Okay. Who's his accomplices? The Antichrist and the false prophet. So chapters 12 and 13 gives this account of these guys. Again, it's background information after he's given a basic chronology. Then what he does in chapter 14 is he switches gears. Because if you're reading this at the time or you're living it, you won't be if you're born again. But if you're living that time period, he's going to do in chapter 14, give a positive. He's going to show even though evil has been so active, there has been, there is going to be working of good of God that's going to oppose that. So what he does in chapter 14 is he starts talking about what God is doing in response, in reaction while the evil is having successes. Here's what God is doing, starting with chapter 14. He says, I looked, and below a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice of, from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. They sang a new song. 
before the throne, before the, be, the be, four beasts and the elders, a song which no man uh, could learn, that song, but the 144,000. And these are they which are not defiled with women, they are virgins. These are they which followed the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before God. That's his first group of people that he says, hey, here's who God is using. And you already have mentioned, who are they? For those who weren't with us, the others help out. Who are these people? In chapter 7, we learn they're from who? The 12 tribes of Israel. How many from each tribe? 12,000. Okay. And uh, they show up in the first half of the tribulation. They are the preachers. They are sealed by God, protected from all the persecutions that are going to take place. They're going to be around, apparently, until the return of the Lord, which is at the end of the tribulation, because he sees who's standing on Mount Zion or Jerusalem with verse 1. Who's, with, who's leading the 144,000? The Lamb or Jesus Christ. So they're around throughout the seven years. They are the survivors. Okay, and so they, they make it all the way through physically, but a lot of their converts don't. Okay, but we have this, this is what's being presented. When the Lamb comes back, the 144,000. So he's coming back. He's going to then be joined with the 144,000 on, on Mount Zion when he returns. And then what he does is he, in the next part of the chapter, talks about angels that are going to be certain messengers. I saw another angel, verse 6, fly in the middle of heaven. And what does this angel have with him that he's proclaiming? the everlasting gospel, okay? So this angel is also being a witness that he is going to preach to who? Everyone. Did you see that in verse 6? In fact, he talks about how he's in the midst of heaven. That's not heaven, heaven where Jesus is or where God is. It's in the midst of the what we call our heavens that we see. So this angel is going to be declaring the word of God un, unobstructed, as he's going through the sky, he's going to be able to declare to everyone, which again, in the middle of this time period, this is in that last three and a half years, Antichrist is running rampant, false prophet with him. In the middle of all that, people are, are going towards evil, and what is God doing? What's that? Not willing that any should perish. He gives them another chance Another chance that these people hear the gospel, and so they're preaching at this God, and, and it's not just to the Jews. Catch, catch this verse. God is concerned about getting the nation of Israel through this, but he is also concerned about other people, not just the Jews, that he's preaching this gospel. So the angel is going. The angel, uh, he is in the midst of the judgments of the trumpets and all. This angel is declaring the word of God with a loud voice, telling these people, get ready, fear God. Stop fearing Antichrist. Stop fearing the false prophet. And by the way, do people at that time have reason to fear Antichrist? Why? And the false prophet. What are they doing that makes people cower, people follow them? They're persecuting people. What else are they doing? They're killing people. Okay, what else have they demanded? Okay. The mark. The mark. They've implemented the mark, which what, without the mark you can't do what? You can't buy or sell. You can't get food. And so people are intimidated by that. They're fearful of these people. And the angel is saying, don't fear them. Fear God. Okay, remember, the beginning of wisdom is 
the fear of God. And so he's saying the judgment is coming, and he's warning them. He's warning them with the gospel of good news. He's also giving the, God, the, the idea that, hey, there's judgment coming. And that's a, that's a consistency within the Scripture that when there is the good news, there is also the warning that goes with it. And so that angel does it. Now he does a second angel. And he talks about in this passage multiple angels. But notice the next angel. There followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she made all the nations drink with the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Last time we were just finishing up here, we were talking about this Babylon. Is it the city? Is it the system? Is it Antichrist? And our conclusion was it could be all of the above. That it's basically saying, like we do today, we say, you know, out of Washington, which means not just the system, but also the philosophies, the laws, everything. And so at this time, the angel is declaring that Babylon, which is the capital of Antichrist in that three and a half years, that this city is certainly going to be destroyed. And remember, up to this point, what have people been saying about Antichrist in that time period? What are they saying? No one can stand against him. Remember that whole idea that he is invincible. And what does the angel declare? God's going to take him out. God's going to take him out. And so he talks about this city that has, that has threatened, that has uh, become extremely wicked. The angel is warning about that. And the angel basically says this city, this system that Antichrist has set up that everybody in the world is afraid of, it's going to be taken out. And so it's an absolute definitive situation because it's stated twice. And, you know, it's just the wickedness is going to be ended it's going to stop. God's going to put an end to it is the point. Then what happens here at this moment is all of a sudden there's going to be another angel that starts speaking up. Okay, watch this angel. The third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and does what? See his mark in his forehead or hand, what's going to happen to that person? Verse 10. They're going to drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He shall torment them with, what's your Bible read? Fire and, what do you think that is? What typically, what is fire and brimstone in, what does that portray? Okay, okay. And he goes on, he says, they're going to be tormented and in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment lasts for how long? Forever and ever. And they have no rest, no peace, day or night. And he re uh, repeats it, who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Then he makes another st statement that I don't want to get into yet. And so this angel is giving another warning. This is, the, this is the next angel giving a warning that God is having declared. And the warning is what we already read. And remember, at this time, according to chapter 13, it says that the world takes the mark. Okay, It says that this mark is the number 666 or the mark of the beast, the name of the beast. And um, with that, it's talking about most people worshiping the beast. 
okay, and taking this mark as part of that time period. And, uh, and again, no one is able to resist when it says those things. Now, here's the question that I have, and that I think, Patty, you were the one that brought this up. Will anyone refuse the mark? When it says that the world goes after them, does it mean absolutely every pe- person in the whole world? And when it says all men will receive the mark, does it mean every single individual? Who will, who will refuse the mark? Okay. Us as in, I'm not going to be there. Okay. Because we're raptured ahead of time. But you're talking the believers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the believers are not taking the mark. Okay. So when he says the whole world, we understand he means what? The majority of people. Most of the people. It, how does it work when your kids want to persuade you to do something? Everybody is doing it. Does it mean everybody or lots and lots? Okay, okay. So Bible, again, talks in the same way that we talk. We use superlatives sometimes, you know, and that's, that's part of our literal speaking. We'll say you know, those words. Well, that's what's happening in this text. Surely the believers and the persecuted Jews will not take the mark. Remember, we've already talked about how Satan comes after him and God takes those Jews that are being persecuted out into the, okay, into the wilderness area. Satan comes after him and God sends a flood to swallow up that, that attack uh, in chapter 12. And so the, the Jews that God is trying to protect, they're not taking this mark. The believers, who are, many of them are going to die, they're not taking this mark. Is there a possibility that, let's put this, others for non-religious reasons might refuse the mark. Could you see patriotic people possibly refusing the mark? Okay, what's going to happen to them? Well, that's the, that's the question. We're throwing out, and I'm, I'm trying to set up a, uh, a stage here. Okay, Could there be some who take the mark for pragmatic purposes. They don't believe in Antichrist, but to eat, they'll take his mark. Is there a possibility? Okay, we don't know. Here's the point. The Bi- and to partially answer your question, we, the Bible doesn't give us any of these exceptions. We think there could be, if we know, if we know how you know, society, there, there's that possibility. But let me throw something at you. Okay, just to kind of counter what I just said. We are thinking of society in action and in terms like we live now. Correct? Okay, we're projecting our own life, our own culture on this future society. We're saying there are people who are patriotic now. And so we think, well, there could be patriots who are very pro-America and don't want this one-world system. But again, we're thinking from our current situation and projecting it on the future. What in the future is going to be in play and it could be real different? Okay, okay. There's no Holy Spirit in people like there is now. And so that which withholds evil has been taken away, which means 
evil is going to be... Okay, what else is happening? During, what other factors are playing into people more than they play into us in our culture today? You've got a one-world system. Okay, you've got all the circumstances that could disasters change people or break people down. Okay, could the disasters, could people be mentally influenced by some of those natural disasters? I think, Jay, you pointed out the idea with the smoke. Uh, you brought up the idea with, the, with a third of the trees, the smoke, I'm trying to remember, Jay. This is like a month and a half ago, and so my memory doesn't go back that far. Okay. I think you suggested oxygen would be affected. Yeah. So could people be physically affected by a change in oxygen? Are people affected when they go to, say, play sports up in Denver? Mile high stadium? Okay. Could people then be affected that way? Could they be affected by other external influences? Do you remember what's in chapter 8 and 9? They came out of the ground. They came out of the river Euphrates. The demons, okay? The demons are far more active. And who got kicked out of heaven at the middle point and is limited to planet Earth now? And he comes with great wrath, okay? And what has God, according to 2 Thessalonians, what has God turned people over to? I will give them over to their own delusion. Yeah, that's it. Okay. So delusion will be far greater. So in my mind, I think, is there a possibility some people, patriotic, whatever, they're going to resist this? There's a possibility, but I'm, again, I'm projecting my culture on this future, and in this future, delusion will be so much stronger, demonic activity will be so much greater, and so I, and I have to pause and think, wait a minute, okay, um, is there this possibility that I am overestimating the moral character of people in that day? Is, am I underestimating the impact of spiritual deception? I think, I think we probably have to stop and say a lot more people and not more of the world are going to be following Antichrist than what we think. It's going to be far greater. As well, here's the question. I think... Um, I'll come back to it. I think the, other, the second part of your question I want to answer as well. Okay. We know for certain that, and this is what we know for certain, that Antichrist will seem unbeatable. It seems like everybody is worshiping him. Could there be other exceptions? We're saying that's a possibility, but I think it's far less than what we give credit for. And believers are going to be the despised minority. Okay? They will be sought after. They will be hunted down. But the point of chapter 14 is God's going to win. God's going to win, even though evil gets... Now, the reason I want to pause and say this is, do you ever think, oh, my word, society has gotten so bad in the last 20 years. How can it get worse? Well, number one, it will, according to the Bible. doesn't mean we should roll over and play dead, but it will get worse. And sometimes as it gets worse, we go, Lord, what are you doing? 
the bottom line is, eventually, God wins. God deals with them. Now, we do what David did. Job did the same thing. How is it that the wicked prosper? I do a little bit of wrong and woof, God, you know, smacks me across the backside or the head. You know, but they get away with it. They won't get away with it. Okay, we have to stop and get the big picture. The big picture isn't here and now. The big picture is in the end. Will God win? Will he stop evil? Yes. Why is he waiting? Pooch, you've said it about ten times in the last few weeks. Why isn't it happening yet? God is not willing that he's giving them opportunity. He is patient because once he puts an end to the war, it's over. It's over. So in his patience, does he allow evil to have some minor victories? Yes. Okay. And so we come to this one, the same shall drink. Now, this passage is loaded. They shall drink with the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture. What does it mean without mixture? What do you mean by pure? It's very strong. Why does he use the analogy without mixture and he talks about a cup of wine? Full strength? Okay. In, uh, we, when we were at one of the museums during our vacation, there's a lot of museums. I know it's weird. But even in this secular museum, they, made, they had a section on Rome and Greece. And there was a whole display about this, and I thought the world even understands. Christians argue over this, whether we can drink or not drink. But the world even understands that in Bible days, the Romans and the Greeks thought somebody who drank their wine undiluted or pure at full strength, they thought, this comment was, they felt they were barbarians. It was always common in the Roman and the Greek culture to do what with your wines? To water them down, to dilute them, so as to get rid of the intoxicating factor. And he is saying in this case, God is not doing what? When it comes to his wrath. He's not watering it down. The angel makes it very clear that it is coming, and it is coming with full force. It is going to be an undiluted wrath or judgment of God. And in this judgment, he makes this comment, which people today don't like. Personally, I'm not, I'm not like, hee-hoo, this is a fun topic. But what is fire and brimstone referring to? Hell. And what is the common thought about people, in, even in Christianity today? We want to, what is it? Yeah, nobody goes to hell. Hell isn't that bad. The angel of God is saying what? It is filled with, okay, okay. And they're, they're, it's happening in the very presence. They're being damned in the presence of the Lamb and the angels of God Almighty. These are the people who have done what towards God? They have blasphemed him. They have mocked him. Basically, the bottom line is, Who's getting the last laugh? God is at this moment. Now, I wanted to pause on this, okay, where he talks about the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. What's that say to you about their judgment, about hell and damnation? What's that say to you right off the top of it? Ever and Okay. The angel warns that it's going to keep on going, that it's going to last forever and ever. 
They have no rest, those who have followed Antichrist. Many of the people question the reality of this text and other texts, especially in our country today, with the question that how can a loving God allow people to go to hell for ever and ever? Even in theology classes, there is another, uh, another theory being suggested to say God isn't so cruel as to leave people suffering in hell forever and ever. Do you know what the, is being postulated more and more? That people who are damned, what happens to them? What's, what'd you say? Purgation. What's that mean? Purgation. Well, you're, you're purifying their sins so that they can be removed out of the... Okay, the, the Roman Catholics teach that. But that's not, uh, that's not where I was going, but some teach it's only temporary. Um, do, do you want... There's another thought that's, being, uh, that's pretty common. That when people are damned... Okay? They, no, that's the same idea. They, they aren't there just temporarily. They go there, but then the, ultimately what happens to them? They're, it's the word called Annihilation. Which means what? They stop being. They stop being. Okay, even in evangelical circles, this is a growing belief system that says it is more merciful for God to just put them out of existence and out of their misery, and they're just non-existent anymore. There isn't eternal hell, hellfire, and damnation. Okay. Your question is, isn't that uh, logically uh, a contradiction? Because the soul is eternal, how can it be annihilated? I don't hold to it, so I don't know. <laughs> okay. I agree with you 100%. Okay. The reason I want to pause on it is because this is becoming more common. Okay. How do you respond to this? That there really is a hell that's bad, and they last forever. One, Jim already gave you one, one uh, answer to it. Souls are eternal. Okay? Anybody else? Any other responses to it? I'm sorry, what? Okay. 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 Excellent. Uh, are there other passages that refer to fire and brimstone? Fire, pain. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, you guys are ahead of me by, by so I'm going to put it this, I'm going to answer it this way, okay? Those who say it's more humane. First thought, and, and it's probably, you put them in whatever order, Jesus suffered in our place for our sins. If he paid the penalty of our sin, and the penalty of our sin was annihilation, then, then how did Jesus come back? So he suffered our penalty. Our penalty, when we talk about uh, that idea of what hell, the real pain of hell, the real pain of hell is being separated from God. Okay? Did Jesus suffer separation from God? Yes. Okay. Now, several of you already point out this idea of eternal fire is found throughout the Bible. 
It's not just one verse. There are dozens of verses that he talk about. Daniel talks about everlasting shame. Isaiah puts it up. He talks about the fire that burns that will not be quenched, that makes them loathsome. Uh, John the Baptist talks about the unquenchable fire. We read in the New Testament Jesus, who spoke more. I think Pucci, I, I started speaking before. He spoke more about hell. Is that what you're going to say than anybody else? Yeah. Okay. Um, that he says that Jesus talks about hellfire. He talks about the idea of uh, eternal fire. He talks about the furnace of fire, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. He talks about the fire prepared for the devil. He talks about eternal punishment. He talks, in, as you mentioned, Joyce, the account of Abraham, our uh, Abraham's bosom, Lazarus being there, and the rich man in hell, uh, that he's in flames and in agony. The writer of Hebrews makes this comment, there is no longer means of sacrifice, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which consumes the adversaries. Now here's one text that is thrown up that to me makes very clear, but others who take a single phrase out of it without context, they have a different point of view. It says, uh, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. There are those who take it and say the word destruction means totally annihilated, totally wiped out, just non-existent. However, the word doesn't mean that. You can make it say that in English, but in the original language, it's the idea of total hopelessness. It's ruin. It's like somebody who's at the top in the pinnacle and all of a sudden they find themselves in total poverty and without anything that they'd worked for their entire life. They're in total ruination. Doesn't mean non-existence. It means a hopeless existence. In fact, if you, if you think through the verse, their, their destruction is being shut away from the presence of the Lord. It's not being annihilated. It's being put away from God. Isn't that hell? separated from God. Okay, that place. And the previous verses, in fact, talks about Jesus coming with his mighty angels, taking vengeance on them with fire, not with annihilation. And so the point is the full punishment or retribution. The point that I'm making is, for you and I, the idea that eternal damnation is real, the fire is real, it ought to impact us how? We're not, we're not headed for there. So what, what, what should be our first reaction that we're not headed there? <laughs> yeah, who is right. Thank you, Jesus, that you took that punishment and I don't have to have it. That should be our, our immediate response. No wonder in heaven when we get there and the full reality of all of this really impacts us and we sing, oh, you know, by his blood, thank you, thank you, thank you. Worthy is the Lamb. The other reaction we should have is share the gospel. Warn people. God's angels were doing it, and they believed in that whole thing, so we ought to give it out. So hell is a consequence. It's not just some, you know, and people say this all the time. It's just, you know, you know it's God's fault. It's not God's fault. The idea of God having vengeance isn't an, an unmitigated, uncontrolled vengeance that's out of wrath. You know, that's just, you know, that human element of just, I just don't like you. It's the idea of this is just retribution for your choices. If somebody ends up in hell, it's their fault, their choice. What did you say, Mike? Man condemns himself. God carries out the judgment, but who 
is responsible for that condemnation? The individuals. Okay. So, uh, hell is real without end. In a positive statement, now what happens here in a positive statement is jump down. You know, there was a slide that was up here that disappeared. And it went back to your question. Okay, your question last time you asked me right before we stopped or we were wrapping up is what if somebody took the mark? It had to do with it. Here's the question, whether Patty, I'm saying it right or not. Uh, the mark is associated in Revelation 13 with the, associated with the worship of the false prophet, or Antichrist via the false prophet. Could, does it mean that if somebody took the mark, they immediately worshiped? Again, I don't know. Okay, some might do it for pragmatic reasons, but I just wanted to point out something that came out of this verse. Is Notice verse 8 with this idea of the mark that, you know, what if they didn't mean it? The reason I bring this up is in the early church, the Donatists had this issue within right around 200 or so um, B.C., or A.D., and that's a group of Christians. They had an issue that they, they said you had to worship at an altar and make sacrifice to the sun. Otherwise, you, you could be persecuted in the early church era. And so some believers went up, and when they, they, to save their life, their job, their property, they would bow down and they would worship the sun, but in their mind they were thinking S-O-N. And they were doing it outwardly so as to protect themselves, but inwardly they were thinking Jesus. Others of the believers, they said, we couldn't even do that because if, you know, we're giving a false impression. And then after that persecution stopped, some believers lost their lives. The big question came when we got together at church, all of a sudden, you know, let's say you lost your family in that persecution and you look over, I'm going to pick on you for a second, you look over and you say, he has everybody with him because he fudged. And so the big question came in that early church is, do I want to worship with this dude? Did he really remain loyal to Christ or not? And it became a major issue for the early church. What do we do with people who fudged or who fudged and then they repented afterwards? Did they give up the faith? And it became a major, major argument. So is it possible that some people in this time period might say, I'll take the mark but not in my heart? Okay, again, we don't know. We have no idea. But I find it interesting that in verse 8, he makes it this statement. All that dwell upon the earth shall do what? I'm in verse 8, chapter 14. Okay, all that dwell upon the earth. I'm sorry. I'm, not, I'm in the wrong chapter. Um, I'm in chapter 13, verse 8. Okay, I, I wanted to jump back to do, 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 yeah, chapter 14, verse 11. Sorry. And it's made, here's the sequence. And they have no rest day and night. Who do what? Worship the beast and his image. And then what follows? Okay, and then th those who took the mark. So it seems to be that in this context that what they're doing is the focus is on what? The worship that they're doing it and following through. I don't know beyond that. I have no clue of how God will see that and how God would do it. But it's, it's very, again, 
projecting our thinking upon that time period, it sure seems that there's a whole lot more delusion that people will swallow hook, line, and sinker a lot more than what we think will. Um, anyway, the point is, he, what he does now in, cha- in this chapter is he kind of pauses, and he's been judgment, 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 judgment on, a, on the wicked, the wicked, the wicked, the wicked. All of a sudden he shifts gears in verse 12 and 13, and he talks about the saints who have suffered. Here is the patience, uh, that's what my King James says, here is the patience of the saints. Do you have something different? Endurance? Anybody have another, another, okay. What's that? Perseverance. Okay, that's a good, that's a really good uh, translation. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. What's it mean, the dead who die in the Lord? Who, what's, who's he referring to? The martyrs during this time period. Now remember, when people were being martyred in the New Testament era, Christians were being killed, did that cause concern amongst the other believers as to where will they be? Will they miss the rapture? Will they miss the resurrection? What's that? That's Thessalonians. That's that whole chapter. The rapture passage... That's why Paul wrote it, because the saints were saying, hey, everybody on that side of the, of the aisle, they died. And if Jesus comes back, what happens to them? And he says, you know, I'm telling you by the word of the Lord, the dead in Christ shall rise first. He's giving them assurances that these people will not be forgotten, neglected, left behind. Okay, not even their bodies. So I think he's doing some of that same thing in this chapter is saying, hey, I want to give you assurances. Those of you living in that time period who are reading the book of Revelation, you're seeing all this evil. You know that God is at work even though Satan seems to be successful. Here is the endurance. Here is the perseverance of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead in which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works that do follow them. To me, what he's doing here is he's commending the martyred saints. He's just throwing in this statement to say, Hey, I haven't forgotten about in the midst of all this judgment and dealing with Antichrist, I haven't forgotten about the saints who have died and who have given up. The idea of perseverance here has two possibilities. It is referring to the idea that these people have kept the faith and or God is keeping them. Which one is it? It could be both. Okay. Okay. In other words, they aren't going to be lost. God's not going to forget them. Look at the gist of the whole passage. I'm not going to forget them, uh, even though those who are going to die in the days ahead, between now and the end of the tribulation, those people who give up their life, their work shall, what does he say? Follow them. Okay, their sacrifices. In other words, what's that mean? When they get to heaven, he gives out rewards. Will he know what they have done? Will he reward them for it? Absolutely. So it's a commendation to the saints who have been faithful, 
to God, and therefore they're either persevering in that sense and or God is keeping them, or both, and God is keeping them no matter what Satan is doing, no matter what Antichrist has done. And then he hears a voice from heaven saying a little bit further, blessed are the dead. We have all these concepts of you know, those who are, who are dying, and he's indicating more will die than until that, that end time period. But I find what's really interesting, what really happens is God says, make sure you write this down. I want these people to know. I want everybody to know. I will bless them. I will reward them. It's certain. Put it down. And then what does the Spirit do? The Spirit says, yes. In church services, how do you, how does some people say yes to something that's been preached that excited them? Okay, that's what the Spirit's saying. Which implies what? That not only is God saying to the angel, tell John to write this down, but the Holy Spirit is saying, this is true. I will remember them. I will bless them. Uh, they're they're going to get a break from all of this hardships that they're going through. And when they get to heaven, I'm going to reward them. And I'm going to bless them for their labors. So it's a, it's a tremendous passage. There's so much more. There's so much more in the text that we want to talk about. But I just let me, let me conclude with this. This chapter is given in contradiction to chapters 12 and 13. Bad, bad, bad. Evil, evil, evil. It's just running rampant. But God is really, how do you, somebody said in control. Okay, he's patient. Okay, so you see victory throughout this chapter. Can I just give you just a highlight of some of the evidences that we just saw? The lamb eventually is standing on the mount. Not knocked down. The idea is he's on this mount. In other words, he's victorious. Okay, Who's with them? Back to the verse first. The 144,000. Have they been chased with, with, uh, during that time period? Remember, they're going to be sealed and protected. Doesn't mean they won't be chased, but it implies that they're protected with all these threats. They're there. God keeps them. There's angels flying around with the gospel. As much as Antichrist is trying to suppress the preaching of the gospel, how does he stop an angel? Flying around. This an- another angel is flying around and saying, Babylon's fallen. Babylon's doomed. Well, that's a sign of victory. Okay, there's, well, there's another angel standing up saying, all of you who followed Antichrist and bought in, you know, this isn't pleasant, but you're not going to win. In fact, you're going to lose everything. You're going to be in hell forever. Sign of victory on God's part. There's the blessing on the martyrs. And God is keeping them. God is keeping them in the sense that doesn't mean he keeps them physically. And again, this, this idea that Christians preach that if I follow Jesus, I'll never have a bad hair day. That's just not true. Okay? Some, okay, it happens. But the idea is we don't, it's not in this life that we are, we are rewarded and this isn't the end it's all got to be kept in perspective of eternity. Eternity. Do we win in the end with Jesus Christ? Absolutely. So this is all, this, this whole chapter is a positive chapter. And then, and then when he picks up and I didn't get time. Okay. Well, the rest of the chapter is amazing what he starts laying out as far as how God's going to deal. So let's stop there. Let's get ready for our worship. If you're bored, have nothing to do for the next few minutes, read Acts 2.